Um, we believe that because of the work of Christ, we have the opportunity to know God. And because of that, we have the opportunity to pray. And in fact, that is one of the great ways that we interact with the Lord. I want to make you aware of a few things. One of those things is this, that starting this Thursday and the Thursdays to follow from noon to one o'clock here in Shakopee, we'll have a prayer time. And during that prayer time, it's informal. So you can come, we'll spend some time in group prayer, and we'll also be spending some time in individual prayer. You may not be able to be here for all of it. Um, That's fine. We want to encourage you to come be a part of any part of it you can. That'll go all the way up till December 23rd. Love to have you join us for that. You may be thinking, well, well, I can't. I work during that time. Would you consider taking that hour of your day from noon to one on Thursdays and specifically be in prayer? You can pray about uh, a couple of things. One of those things is Christmas Eve service. We're asking that, that God would just be big, that people would hear him and respond in faith to him and to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So make that, we would encourage you and ask you to make that a part of your prayer. Uh, additionally, we want to encourage you to uh, be praying for the people that come. A lot of times, uh, Christmas and Easter are the only times that, there, that some people hear the gospel. And so we were asking that it would just be very clear. So if you could join us in prayer for that. Additionally, uh, pray for one another. There are plenty of needs that, uh, that are out in front of us, and we, we want to designate a time uh, during this season, especially this dark season, where the light of Christ can really be revealed. And so we'd ask you to join us in that. And with that in mind, would you join me as we pray? Lord, we love you, and we thank you. We ask, Almighty God, that you would be exalted and lifted up. And Lord, we just think of this dark season. It's, it's dark uh, earlier, but also, Lord, there are dark things going on in our world. Uh, heavy things, burdensome things. And so we lean into you now, Almighty God, and we ask that you would be glorified and that you would be honored, that in a very real way the light of Christ would be made manifest through the beauty of your bride, the church, Lord, that you would use your people in kingdom ways to minister, that the lost would be found, that the blind would see, that the dead would become alive in you that you would be glorified in all of these things. Lord, unite our hearts uh, individually and corporately in all we do and say. And it's because of your son's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, I don't know if this is true for you, and I'm, I'm kind of revealing my hand here, uh, but that's okay. We're, we're all pretty close and we can do this. Um, and that is that there are questions that, that people ask sometimes that actually get, it, it bothers me. It's not that they ask them, it's that we have to ask them. So here's an example of the question that I'm thinking of in particular. It's this, uh, what kind of church is that? And when they ask that question, oftentimes they mean a variety of things. They could be meaning, uh, is, that a, uh, is, is that a wealth and prosperity type of 
church where they're going to preach that as the gospel? Are they a name it, claim it kind of church? Are they theologically conservative? Are they theologically progressive? Are they a political church? Do they lean to the right or to the left? What type of church are you? Do you are you Arminian? Are you Calvinist? Like, what is what kind of church is it? And so I understand the question, but it really bothers me because uh, I'm an idealist in this respect. We're a church. By the very fact that we're a church means that we're a Christian. This is a redundant statement, but we're a Christian church. We're followers of Christ. What type of church are we? We're the type of church that lifts Jesus up. That's the kind of church that we are. We're going to follow Jesus. We're going to love Jesus. We're going to proclaim Jesus. In fact, I'm going to ask you this question. Only if you hear me preach a sermon and Jesus is not spoken about, will you run me outside on a rail and knock some sense into me? Would you do that? Only if I don't preach Jesus. Some of you are a little too willing. Uh, Please know. The point is, we're about Jesus. And because Jesus is the point of us coming together, he's the reason. When he rose from the grave, the followers of him said, hey, let's get together on the first day of the week because that's when he rose from the grave. So we celebrate Easter every time we come together. What's the point of Easter? That Jesus died on the cross, not just that, but that he rose from the grave and he gives life to anybody who would call on him. Like We have no other message than that. What kind of church are you? We're the kind of church that loves and follows Jesus. That's the type of church that we are. Anything else is unacceptable. We get off on these little tangents and that's all they are, these little tangents that don't make sense in the whole scope of eternity. We're Jesus church. For us to be a Jesus church, we have to be a Jesus people. And what I mean by that is that Jesus needs to matter in my everyday life. He also needs to matter in your everyday life. And in your everyday life, and in your everyday life, and in your all of our everyday life. That's how we become a Jesus church. A church that's focused on him. A, a church that identifies, hey, when, when I'm not following Jesus, I repent. That's called sin. I'm sinning, and I'm going to repent of that sin, and I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to make him a part of every area of my life. Uh, A theologian, professor, and Christian futurist, I didn't even know there was such a thing, but there is. His name's Leonard Sweet. He had this phrase, and I've used it once or twice before, but I think it's worth bringing it in again. And the phrase is JDD, Jesus Deficit Disorder. And... uh, the, the reality is many churches are in that place where you might come to church and never hear the name of Jesus. How can that be? That's not going to be us. Uh, that's not going to be us from up here. That's not going to be the expectation for all of us individually. It's like when, when I do biblical counseling, when people come in, we start with Jesus. Uh, that, that's all we have. Without Jesus, we're not a church. Uh, We're a group of people who are getting together to talk about things that kind of matter, secondary, or maybe third issues, or fourth issues, or fifth wave issues, but it's not the same. And that is the point that Paul is driving home in Romans chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. As you're turning there, let me outline where we're going to go in this. We're going to talk about responsibility, righteousness, remission, and relationships Uh, as we walk through this passage. 
As you're thinking about that, I want to bring us up to where we're at. Paul makes a statement, and his statement is this. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That is his premise, and that's what he's going to build on through through the whole book. It's going to go to that very point. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation. And the early church had some struggles with that. And even early on, there were some heresies that were starting to creep in. And Paul is trying to identify that right from the very beginning. A group of people thought, well, you know what? I have this kind of background. And because I have this kind of background, I'm, I'm a little more special to God than you are. Uh, I know things about God that you don't. And though some pieces of that are true, in other words, that God does have a special group of people, Israel, that he is uniquely kept and used to show the nations his glory and appoint people to God himself, though that is true, uh, God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of everyone, Jew and Gentile. And lest you think, okay, well, I know, uh, I know the word of God, I know the scriptures, uh, I know the laws that God has given, so that makes me better. Paul goes, no, no, that you broke those two. In fact, your responsibility was to share those so that, the whole nation, so that all nations around us could look in and see God at work, and, and you blew it. But also, God has written his law on our hearts for the Gentiles as well. And even those laws that we get intuitively, that we understand, yeah, you shouldn't murder people. Okay, yeah, every, every nation agrees with that. Uh, even those, we've blown it. And, and so the point that Paul is making is that all of us are guilty. And not one of us is righteous. And therefore, we all need a Messiah. We all need someone to save us. And he's going to develop that idea and point us to Jesus over and over and over again throughout this book of Romans, but we're especially going to see it from verses 19 through 31. And like I said, we're just going to walk through this together as we go. So let's look first at the responsibility. And in this responsibility, you're going to see that there, uh, we're going to see who is responsible and we're going to see a revelation pop up. Let's watch this. Starting in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Who's responsible? Everyone is responsible. Not one of us can say, I'm not responsible. That's not my problem. Oh, well, you know, that, that's the God of Israel. That. Like, if I would have grown up under that, then it'd be different for me. No, we're all accountable, and we're all responsible uh, for our relation, this relationship with God. Let's keep going to verse 20 uh, as we look at the revelation, how, uh, how this is being revealed. For by works of the law, no human being may be justified. I'm going to give you an elementary um, definition of justified, okay? When you see that word, elementary terms, just think, just as if I never sinned, okay? So that's a a great way to remember that biblical word, justify, just as if I never sinned. So for by works of the law, no human being will be just as if they never sinned in his sight. 
So again, the law is not going to get us there. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law does a great job of letting us know we're insufficient. We can't do it all. We come up short. That's what is being revealed in verse 3. So we look at the responsibility. We see that we're all responsible. The revelation is that we're all guilty as well. Let's keep going and look at righteousness. So uh, righteousness is, again, one of those great words that uh, we, in basic definitions, we could say do the right thing all the time. We could say never sin. We, we could use some phrases like that to help us understand righteousness. One of the ways that it was practiced in the first century is as a part of worship, there would be a benevolence that was given to the poor. So uh, people who had something gave to others who didn't have something, and they would call it their righteousness. So I have something you don't have it, you can't get it on your own here. And it was referred to as a righteousness. And so what I'm not saying is, again, that that is uh, some sort of uh, prosperity gospel. That's not what I'm referring to. But what I am referring to is that God reveals his righteousness in having something that we can't have, that we can't have on our own, that we can't earn on our own, that we can't get. And he comes in the flesh and he gives that when he dies on the cross for our sins, when he conquers sin and death, when he raises from the grave, he shows his righteousness. He was right in all that he did. We're going to see that played out in just a few moments. This is the pattern that we'll walk through this passage with. uh, Pardon, plan, problem, and perfection. Let's take a look at it. Starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Okay, so there is a righteousness of God that is available apart from the law. In other words, you don't have to follow the 613 commandments, or if you want to break it down to the 10, or if you want to look at the prophetic uh, three do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Or if you want to look at Jesus, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. There is a righteousness that exists outside of the law. And we're going to see what that is. Let's look at the plan. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So what is the righteousness of God? Well, it's found through faith. It's in Jesus Christ and it's for all who believe. Now, I might better pause and talk about this word believe for a minute. Uh, Sometimes this word is used in a little bit different ways. Context bears it for us, but let's talk about the word believe. Because we might say something like this. I believe that our president is Joe Biden. I believe that. Informationally, I get that. I have no relationship to him. Uh, I don't know this president. I, I don't know him. We often use believe in that respect. So, informationally, I know God. That's not what this word is referring to, though. It would be more closely aligned to this. I believe that I can sit in this chair, therefore I'm going to sit in this chair. So my action follows my belief. There is an action associated with it. I have a relationship with this. Okay, so that's the chair, but what we're talking about is this relationship with God that connects our information with our action. So there should be action that follow this belief. God, how do we get this righteousness? Well, it's of God. It's through faith in Christ Jesus, and it's for all who believe, not just informationally. Yep, there's a God. James says, yeah, there is a God, and the demons 
uh, shudder at that one. That's not what they're talking about, but they're talking about a relationship with God, an interaction that causes action. Let's keep going. From plan to problem. For there is no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I do know this. The Greek word for all actually means all. It means everything. It's it's, it's really good translation right there. <laughs> uh, it's all. All of us. All have sinned and fall short. I have sinned and fall short. You have sinned and fall short. We have sinned and fall short. Your mom, your dad, your kids, whatever. They have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, That's the problem. So if we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then none of us have the righteousness of God in and of ourselves. It's not based on this action, but as we saw earlier in the plan, it's because of faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Let's keep looking at this. In verse 24, here's the perfection. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Just as if I hadn't sinned is a gift presented. Will I receive that gift? Will I take that gift? And my choice, my call. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus has done the work. The gift is wrapped. It's available. And now will I receive it? Paul is doing all that he can to remind the Romans this. The righteousness of God does not come from their actions. It does not come from their lineage. It's not because of the things that they have done. Though, because of faith, because we've trusted Jesus, there are actions that will change. It will affect and infect our behavior. That will happen. It should happen. But here, he's saying it's not because of what you have done. That's an important piece. Uh, I would say even in churches, we'll have this conversation oftentimes where uh, I'll just ask the simple question, how do you know you're saved? And oftentimes, I'll get this kind of response is, well, because I'm a good person. I'm like, good compared to who? Like, really? I've shared this before, and I, I love the illustration. You'll probably hear it a lot, but Ray Comfort does such an excellent job of identifying this and helping us to identify who is good. And so Ray Comfort is an apologist, uh, an evangelist, and he goes around, and you can, you can find him on YouTube, and you can read his books and all kinds of stuff. He's great. Anyways, uh, one of the things that he'll do is he'll ask someone, if there is a heaven, how do you know you would go there? And they'll say, because I'm a good person. And he goes, oh, you're a good person. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, how do you know you're a good person? And they say, well, because it's not like I've you know, killed anybody or anything. He goes, oh, that's really interesting. Well, let's walk through this. Have you ever lied? Oh, yeah. Yep, I've lied. Oh, okay. Well, now I'm going to start getting a little more personal. Have you ever been angry with anybody? Yep. Oh, Uh, Jesus says that anger is the same sin as murder. Okay. Well, now I'm going to get really personal. Have you ever, have you ever lusted after anyone? Well, yeah. Oh, well, Jesus calls that adultery. So you said you were good, but what we've just identified is that you're a, a lying, murderous adulterer. That doesn't sound really great to me. Well, I have to admit that 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 is true. And this is is the point. Our righteousness is not our righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness given to us uh, for all who believe, who trust in him. 
Let's keep going. Let's look at the, the piece of remission. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, great word, it means to appease. This word is used uh, a few ways. It's, it's most closely associated with um, a practice from the Old Testament that is also, well, it's also true in the New Testament. Long story. Anyways, uh, basically this. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. When they'd go into the Holy of Holies, while the Ark of the Covenant was there, uh, they would go to the Ark and they would place blood on uh, the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant. If you've watched uh, Indiana Jones, uh, you'll know what I mean, the Ark of the Covenant. It's the, it's the lid. Now, they had to go in there a certain way. There was a special way that they had to go in there. And, and uh, if they didn't, they would die. And you might be thinking, wow, that's really mean that God would kill people who would come into his presence. And, and I, I hear what you're saying, but, but hear me out. God is a holy God. And, and he doesn't just, um, well, it means something to be holy. Let's say it that way. Now I'm going to talk about something I know very little about. And by very little, I mean nothing. And that's this. Uh, uh, if you went to a nuclear plant and you went to the reaction uh, the reaction chamber, the reactor, you would go in there, and if you weren't covered, if you just thought, hey, this is a pretty cool plant. I feel safe here. I'll just walk right in. And you walk right in. Uh, you're going to die. And it's not because this nuclear reactor is bad. It's because you weren't protected. And so it is with God that there is this holy, awesome, amazing God that we are separated because of our own sin that we've identified because of that, we, we need to be covered. How are we covered? We're covered in Christ. That's what allows us to go into the presence of God. Uh, throughout the practice of the priests, when the high priest went in there, if, if uh, they would put bells on the bottom of his uh, clothing to, okay, yep, he's still moving. And then if he wasn't, they often would have a string around him. And if, if he wasn't moving and he wasn't responding, they'd drag him back out because they didn't want to go in there. And deal with that. Right? They could die too. God is holy. Because God is holy, uh, there is a way that we approach him. The way that we can approach him is through Christ. Uh, that's an important piece. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Isn't that good news? His divine forbearance. That means that every time we sinned, he didn't go, you're done. Like, he didn't send us off. Uh, he was forbearing. God's forbearance, his goodness, leads us to repentance. And he held off even when we're sinful, even when we have missed the mark, even when we've entered into his presence uh, flippantly. Uh, God's forbearance has been there. The pardon. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just and the justifier. It's like this. He's the great physician, and he's also the great medicine. It's like that. So he's not just the, the perfect one, but he's the one who can also make others perfect and also identify who has been made right. Sometimes we want to uh, paint these nice little pictures of somebody's faith 
are they in or aren't they in? And, and those, are, those can be hard to do sometimes. I do think there should be fruit. I think scripture is clear about that. But I also recognize that there are times, there, there are times when people receive Jesus as their Savior where there's very little change in their life. And then all of a sudden, there's a lot of change. And God is at work. It's like he's, this seed has been planted in us and it's growing kind of thing. And we don't always see it from the outside. So we have to be really careful when we're starting to identify, oh, this person's saved, that person's not saved. This is, be careful. That's God's job. And I have this sneaky suspicion that when we get to heaven, God's not going to do this one. Hey, Kenny, could you come here and help me judge this? Because I'm just not sure. Like, nope. He's, the, he's just and he's the justifier. Uh, he's got it. Let's keep going. So let's look at the conversion, the comparison, and the control in this last section. The conversion. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, just as if you hadn't sinned, by faith apart from works of the law. What are we saying here? We don't boast in what we have done. We boast in Christ because of what he has done. Our trust in him is different than obeying the law, being, uh, being justified or being made right uh, through the law. There's a conversion. There's a transformation that should begin. Let's look at the comparison. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Pause there. Every good Jewish person, at least in the first century, would have said, when they woke up, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul perhaps is referring to that and reminding the church of that truth. Though it's true that God is one, he's unified within himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he's one. He's, he's uh, unified, for sure. But also, he's one. He's over all. He's not like the the gods of the Egyptians who would divide, okay, this is the God of the sun, and this is God of the harvest, and this is God of the dead, this is God of the traveler. No, God is one. He's over everything. And not just over one nation, but over all nations. He's, He's one. And this is a good reminder of that. Is God the God of Jews only or Jews and Gentiles? Yeah, everybody. He's God for everybody. And the Romans needed to hear that. They needed to be reminded of that early on. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Because it's faith uh, that, uh, that we're judged. It's not on our circumcision. It's not on how many of these laws we get right. Control. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So what was happening is this, that early on, and we saw this in, earlier in this chapter, that people were saying, well, wait a minute. If God covers sin, then doesn't it make sense for us to continue to sin? Like, we should sin more. Because won't that make God look good? Because he's covering even more sin. So let's just keep sinning. That's great. What a great God we have. Yeah, go get drunk. Yeah, go do whatever you want. That's perfect. 
because God is in control and God is over all of that. That was the line of reasoning that was taking place in the early church. And Paul is snuffing that out. He's like, no, 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 no. That's not it. Uh, This law has been given to us for the sake of life. Because we've received Jesus as our Savior, because he's made us righteous, then now we can follow the law. We can, we can walk through it together. Like, I, I'm not going to murder, not because, uh, uh, not because I want to murder you, I'm not gonna, or I don't want to murder you. I'm, I'm not going to murder you because I love Jesus. Uh, I'm not going to covet what is my neighbor's because I, I love Jesus, and he's done a work in my life. I'm, I'm not going to steal not because I don't want that, but because I love Jesus. And Jesus affects and infects the decisions that I made. And for the sake of life, I'm willing to follow him. And Paul puts this out in front of the church. And as he does, and as we look at it today, it's out in front of us too. And we have to make some decisions. Uh, is there Jesus deficit disorder in our lives? In other words, are we walking through life and compartmentalizing Jesus to only aspects of our lives? Jesus affects me. Yeah, when I go to church, yeah, it affects me there. But does he at home and does he at work and does he in our private thoughts and in our public discourse, does Jesus affect and infect the decisions that we make and the way that we make them? He should. We're going to transition into a time of communion. And as we do, I'm going to ask the worship team to come out. During communion, we identify a few things. One, we're called to be believers. Like believers participate in communion. That's what makes sense. Because we're saying this body that Jesus has broken for us, this blood that he has shed for us, it makes sense. It was for me. I'm participatory. I'm participating uh, in this in this uh, life together. So it's for the believer. Additionally, you can be uh, from another church, and that's fine. Uh, We're just asking that what we believe to be the biblical practice of making sure you're a follower of Christ to participate. And then the second thing, from 1 Corinthians, it identifies that we're supposed to examine our hearts. Is there any unconfessed sin? Today, based on the message, I want to present three Uh, questions for us to chew on. Here are the three questions. What is my salvation based on? In other words, have I been saying this whole time, it's because I'm I'm actually pretty great and uh, God should be thankful that I'm on his team because I'm so good. (laughs) Or is there this reality of I'm a sinner and I, I can't do this on my own. I need to be rescued And because of that, I've trusted Jesus as my Savior. It's his work, not mine. Chew on that. Does my life demonstrate a transformed life? In other words, over the course of the last, I don't know, year, three years, five years, ten years, you look different. And I don't mean like your hair color or lack of hair or whatever. That's not what I'm referring to. But is your life changed? Do you look different? Do you look more like Jesus today than you did in terms of actions, in terms of behavior, in terms of wanting to honor God? And then, what must I do to be saved? One of the questions that has come up a lot is, uh, within the church at large, could we individually lead someone to the Lord? In other words, would you feel comfortable if someone came to you today and said, what must I do to be saved? 
Did you tell me? Like, how do, what, what would I have to do? Would you go, yeah, you need to be smart enough. You need to do these things. Or would you be able to clearly identify the gospel? We're sinners, need a savior. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He conquered sin and death, rose from the grave, gives life to anybody who would call on him. For all who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead will be saved. Are you in a spot where you feel comfortable? You can walk through that with another person. That's the challenge that we have today as we enter into this time of communion. During this time, we again want to remind you that there are four stations. Uh, we want to encourage you to use the station that's close, more closely associated with you. If you go down to the carpeted areas and then go to the station and then uh, back around on the outside, that will help the flow go well. But here's the thing. As you're wrestling through those questions and as you're considering what God might have for you today, you may go, you know what, before I get up, I just need some time to focus. We're going to sing a song together. You, you can use that time. Or you might say, you know what, I'm going to get both of the elements so I can have them in my hand and I'm going to sit down and then focus and think through some of those uh, questions. That's great too. At the end of this next song, we'll come back together uh, and we'll participate together. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, we do love you, and we thank you. Help us, Lord, to not have a Jesus deficit disorder in this place. We ask, Almighty God, that you would work in us and through us, and as we come together and celebrate communion, we're celebrating you, because <laughs> you're the whole point that we come together. So be exalted, Lord, as we've considered your word and wrestled through responsibility and righteousness and remission and relationship. It's that relationship with you that we need. And so we celebrate you today. In Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. Amen.